Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. So today's episode is with Sandra Portal Andreo. And Sandra is a Miami native, born and raised in Hialeah. She's Cuban and Colombian descent, and she's done a lot of different work, especially in dance choreography and theater. She's also a small business owner. And just an incredibly talented person whose work really focuses in on identity and migration, gender and what it means to be Latina and how the tech of our modern society influences us and who we are, and also the history of us. How are we in conversation with the land we sit on? How is our conversation with the native people of this country? And how is that in conversation with the people who continue to come to this country now? This is a really great conversation. I'm really happy she got the time to sit down and talk with me about all this. And I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's about nine o'clock where we are right now on the East Coast. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. This is very exciting. You have done a lot. This is really exciting. <laughs> I've 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 dipped my toes in many many puddles. Yes, <laughs> including voiceovers, according to IMDb. Is that true? Really? I Are you sure IMDb it's not another not another sense? I mean, I have done voiceover work, but that was a long time ago. IMDb remembers everything. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I I don't. Mm, okay. I mean, we, we'll go there. We'll go there. <laughs> Can you please tell the audience who you are and what do you do? Well, thank you. So my name is Sandra Portal Andreu. I'm a first-generation Americana, daughter of immigrants, my of Danilo Portal and Diana Lucia Estrada. Oh, my goodness. My father is Cuban. My mother is Colombian. I consider myself a pretty multi-hyphenated individual. I'm a mother. First and foremost, I have two boys, Julian and Gabo, who I adore and who I hope are cleaning their dishes right now. I'm also a multidisciplinary artist that's primarily worked in dance and theater, but I've also done work in film and I specify most of the work that I create on site specificity, really activating unconventional spaces. And then... The last piece to the puzzle is that I'm also an entrepreneur. I have a patent on a design that I created back in 2015 and was really fortunate enough to bring it to market in 2020. So yeah, I'm 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 a curious person. I'm always asking what if or what about or how about. And I am a constant learner. I like to sort of figure out things and find solutions. And I think along the way, it's like I'm learning more and more about myself. So yeah, I think that's that's me. <laughs> that last part seems especially important given you've been a teacher, right? You you told me a little bit before we started this that you're helping yeah. you, know, you started producing. How has that informed how you teach? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I'm an I'm an adjunct professor at the New World School of the Arts in Miami, Florida. It's part of Miami-Dade County Public Schools and also in partnership with Miami-Dade College and the University of Florida. 
Now, I was a student there as well. I went there for my first two years of, of college. I got my associates there, associates in arts. And then I went to Florida State and I finished my bachelor's over there. I could have stayed at New World all four years, but I really need to, needed to leave Miami. I was in college in the 90s. So that was an interesting time in Miami. And I really needed to kind of get away. And it was great. Um, but it was a... a you know, it was an interesting time overall because even my senior year of college was when September 11th happened. That's how I started my senior year of college. But, you know, it, it, I've always been tied. And, and the reason why I say all these things sort of happening, because really in my mind, I wanted to stay and I wanted to start off in Miami, go to Florida State, and from there have the experience to then move up to New York and pursue this dancer dream, you know, the Mikhail Baryshnikov thing that you, you know, we used to see all the time in the 70s and the 80s and all that. Gelsey Kirkland and, you know, Susan Jaffe, all of these dancers that I was like, oh, you know, just, you know, being like in awe of. And that was a thing. You had to go to New York. And so obviously 2001 happens and, and that all changed everything. But that's what kind of forced me to come back to Miami. Mm -hmm. And a year after, a year after graduating, I was back and forth, back and forth, New York, auditioning, doing workshops, stuff like that. And it was, it was, there was definitely a shift that happened and I decided to stay in Miami. And then I got the job at New World at my, sort of my alma mater, right? And I've been there since 2003, had one moment during the pandemic where I took some time off, but I've been an adjunct there, teaching a couple of classes um, in the high school and in the college, primarily working initially with, you know, dance, teaching dance for musical theater, and then slowly working towards, you know, working more primarily with theater actors and just working with, you know, movement for acting and then progressing into creating a, a, a course called Immersive Theater and Performance Practices which is totally a reflection of my performance experience and producing experience in Miami and what's going on really, you know, nationally and, and internationally in the performing arts sector. You know, this whole notion of, of immersive theater, immersive interactions, immerse, immersive technology, you know, site-specific performance, site-specific dance, interactive art, you know, all of that stuff. So... Yeah. Would you say it's kind of the pivot that we see with people, especially as I guess this new generation, right, of people coming into money, really value experiences more than things that kind of just pass you by? Is, is it something like that? Well, it's interesting because we talk about that. This this course that I teach, it is a it is a high school level course for the seniors, but it's a dual enrollment course, right? And I think it's a nice way for most of these, you know, high school theater students that are thinking about going into college for theater to sort of look at theater in unconventional spaces and breaking boundaries, right, or barriers. And one of the things that we do talk about is why are these immersive experiences so, so prevalent nowadays, right? Like, why are people you know, going and seeing this kind of work and, and all that. And a lot of it has to do with technology, mm -hmm. right? The fact that, yes, we are connected, but we're still isolated. 
and there's this level of FOMO and there's all these levels of like, oh, is this performance or is this sort of installation going to be like, you know, for the gram? So all of these things that people are, are sort of gravitating to these performances or activations because it does give them a sense of, of community, of coming together and finding those experiential moments, you know, that's a long word at nine o'clock at night, man. (laughs) (laughs) Or like what we talk about is this ephemeral feeling, right? Where you're, you're just feeling it, you're, you're, and you're just, you know, during it in your mind, but more so for theater and more so for dance, I think people are really interested in, in, in tapping into you know, local historical sites and seeing performance activations there and, and having sort of like a new association to that site, you know? Yeah, of course. I guess I want to double back to a couple of things then when you talk about community. I'm also really interested in kind of the ways your life seems. You seem to be there at a couple of pivotal uh, historical moments in the U.S. and kind of globally. So obviously you went to the adulthood into 9-11, but I really yeah. love to hear more about how your family story. How did they come to the U.S.? So I'll start with my mom because it was a little bit, it was it was a lot easier for my mom. My mom was born in Medellin, Colombia, and and she she came to the U.S. She was young; she was three years old. But it was an interesting story because my grandfather, I believe, had his brother here and his brother's family here, and he had gotten a job. I think at the time they were hiring. It was like they were working, I think, for a, an American company based in, in Colombia, and it was an easy transition. So so they got a visa for that, like a work visa. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is that my grandmother did not want to come. <laughs> my grandmother is from Barranquilla. She was, you know, if anybody knows, that dynamic is even pretty intense in itself because a lot of people are like, what do you mean? Your, your grandfather's paisa and your grandmother's you know, Costeña, how did that even happen? You know, it's like two regions of Colombia that apparently don't really get along too well, right? So, but uh, my grandfather was, you know, he was a rebel. And he told my grandmother, look, we're just going to go for a year. It's just going to be a cool experience and, you know, whatever. So they they came, I think they were here for that year with his brother and and his and his brother's family. His brother's family leaves. They go back to Colombia. And then they end up being like, well, let's let's stick around for like another year. Oh, let's stick around for another year. <laughs> <laughs> and those other years, other years, other years turned out to be basically, you know, a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, my mom and I still feel very connected to Colombia. So does my grandmother. I mean, my grandmother said that during that time, she often flew back to Colombia like all the time she would take the girls, my mom and her and and my aunt. So, you know, there was a lot of like back and forth for them. My mom spent holidays there. So there that connection, you know, was was always there. And and then little by little we started having some family coming over here due to different reasons, mainly because of things that were going on in the 80s and in Medellin. And you can fill in the so that's that. <laughs> and we can go even even deeper in that. But there's a lot of parts there that, that, yeah. 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 
<laughs> that yeah. <laughs> so my dad's though, my dad's immigration story is really interesting because um my dad is 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 an exile. He's a Cuban exile. He came during the freedom flights in the night in 1968, January 1968. And I believe at the time he was 12, 12 years old. And so for a lot of people that don't know what the freedom flights are, they were basically flights that happened twice. You know, there was two planes that were constantly leaving from Matanzas to Miami during, let's see, 1965 to 1973. And, you know, it was a series of progress of things, you know, Cuba, Diego Castro took power in 1959. So, you know, my family was, was there for like almost a decade, you know, so they saw sort of the degradation, if you will, little by little. You know, and for most people that know, the affluent people were the first ones to leave, you know, and my my family was very working class and everything like that. The funny story about my dad is that I didn't hear this until recently, that he met, he met Castro. Oh. Like he literally shaked his hand <laughs> or shook, right? So More context. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you the chisme. So chisme is gossip, guys. Okay, just in case your audience doesn't know. But yeah. So my dad, he was at school. And they were having like a science fair, right? And Castro comes in with his people. Oh, we're going to the school. And they start looking at all the booths. And guess where they stop? They stop in front of Danilo Portal's booth. <laughs> and I don't know what my dad, I, I forgot what the science experiment was. And it's kind of funny because my dad is really a science-y guy. He's, he's, he actually graduated with, computer, with a computer engineering degree. But he stops in front of my dad's booth, shakes his hand, and they take a picture of him. Right? Yeah. So my dad gets home. And he tells my grandparents, hey, Fidel came to the school today and he stopped by my booth and he shook my hand and they took a picture and all this stuff. Man, my dad says that the next day they took off. <laughs> they took off. They started literally take, I mean, and, and at the time during these freedom flights, like you could not take anything. It was like the bare you know, bare bones, right? But at least, you know, it was a luggage and my grandmother, you know, que paz descanse, uh, may she rest in peace. You know, she told me the story that, you know, she tried to take just the, the best clothes that she could, right? Because she didn't have a job. They didn't know where they were going to stay, but she was like, at least with some decent, you know, a nice dress or a nice something, at least I could probably get myself a job, right? So they tried to get their most decent clothes. They had to, to she had to, her wedding ring, all the jewelry, the family jewels, like they put it in a jar and they they dug it in the backyard. During the freedom flights, when people would go through, you know, through the airport, through security or whatever, they would look at all the luggage. So anything that was of value, they would take it away. So like people would sew jewelry into their clothes, like into the hem 
of the clothes. So my grandfather, there was a bracelet, I think that my, that my, that my aunt had that he literally sewed it back into the cuff of his, of his shirt. And, uh, you know, there's other stories of people putting things in their hair, opening the shoes, stuffing things into the shoes and, and then gluing it. You know, it, it was, yeah, it was, you know, all these insane stories. They left. They left first to Jersey because at the time my dad's uncle was the first one, the oldest, the oldest of the brothers was the first one to migrate. And they were up in Jersey. They only lasted like maybe two weeks, <laughs> maybe three weeks. My grandfather was like, you know, oil like this cold. I can't. <laughs> and, and then they, they settled in Miami. But you know what? The crazy story is that two weeks, uh, a few weeks later, um, the, I guess the military or who knows, some personnel of Castro, they went back to try to find my, my dad. Hmm. Probably wanted to use him as some sort of, you know, children and things like that as some sort of sign for the regime, you know, like, look at what we're doing, look at the youth, you know, yeah. all this and that. So, yeah, that was, that was my dad's story. <laughs> Came here and thankfully because of, of Johnson and also because of the Cuban Adjustment Act, you know, they were able to, you know, go into a pathway of, of citizenship, you know, which has been really controversial, you know, for a lot of other immigrant groups. So I was just talking to a friend of mine about that, actually. So <laughs> that's a very on. Yeah. Topic. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I saw it. I saw it on both sides. I saw family members that came in, were literally given food stamps, flights to wherever they needed to go. I, I think a certain amount of, of, of Medicare, you know, money in their pocket. And then I have the other side, the Colombian side, where I had family members that were, you know, in secret and or trying to figure out how to how to get that visa, how to get that residency, who to marry, you know, the stories that a lot of immigrants, unfortunately, have to go through. And so I saw both sides. And, you know, I've obviously had many questions <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on the level of privilege that I think many Cubans have compared to other immigrant groups, you know. So, you know, I do think that it should be an equal playing field. There's definitely a lot, a lot, I mean, Cuba is in bad shape right now, but you know, so is Haiti. Yeah. You know, and the treatment is is really different. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I don't know if you, I think we've talked about this a little bit more. My girlfriend is from Miami and we literally talked about all of this earlier today also. Oh, really wow. Yeah. Well, we part of Miami. She was from she, uh, South Miami. She lived okay. next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then she went to school at Gulliver. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great school. That's a great yeah. school. Jeff Bezos went there. Did you really? I'm going to make fun of her. She never told mm -hmm. me this. <laughs> the Bezos went there. So I want to pivot a little bit back to something in terms of, wow, that's really interesting. The way that your family, I mean, this isn't uncommon, I don't think. You know, I feel like a lot of immigrant groups are like this, where they intersect or their family's histories intersect at a lot of historical moments. I'd love to hear more about how did your coming to America story, your family's coming to America story, influence your work and your art? Wow. Well, I can definitely say that 
my fam, there was always music in my house, always music in my family. I mean, it was, you know, my great grandfather in, in Barranquilla was a composer and a violinist and played the piano. And, you know, I, I can, I can say that, you know, there's a lot of artistic vibes going on in the ancestors and all that, but, you know, I think in my practice, it's, it's evolved. I did start off as a, as a trainer, as mm. we call them here, you know, the, the bun heads, you know, a ballerina. And then I started doing modern dance and I started really falling in love with modern dance. Just the fact that, you know, I could explore movement in really asymmetrical ways. I did theater in high school and I took classes in college. And that also gave me a sense of exploring my voice and hearing my voice which sometimes makes me cringe, but you know, no, it was all these things. And then plus growing up in Hialeah, which is a very working class neighborhood. I mean, everybody that, if you didn't speak Spanish there, mm -mm. like it's very hard for you, my friend. So yeah, I, I just think that all of these experiences have really nurtured me to explore certain themes that are either predominant in my culture or in society, but maybe looking at it through a Latina lens. You know, one of the first pieces that I produced was a work called TMI. And I, I remember my dad loved it. He loved it because it was all about technology. And I was like, dad, this is the piece for you. <laughs> because <laughs> my dad was a computer engineer. I grew up with monitors and modems, whatever the heck you call them, you know, motherboards and all that stuff around me. I mean, I don't know why I didn't go further into that. I probably would have made way more money, you know, but it was all about technology, but mostly about our, our sort of tech addiction. And mind you, this, this piece, I, I, I produced it like, wow. When was it like 10 years ago, 10, 10 years ago almost. Mm. And the technology has changed so much. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you know, whatever. And then the next piece that I did was talking about shaming predominantly among women, you know, and it was kind of like this weird <laughs> sort of inflection of me being a woman, being a dancer, and all of that, because that's all a messy thing too, you know? I mean, I remember being weighed in front of people, you know, right before performances. Like, that was a whole thing. And just like, yeah, addressing sort of like societal responses to women about women, you know? And, and, and why we're sort of conditioned to doing those things. And that's my dog barking in the background. And I'm so sorry if you hear her. Her name is Lupe. She's amazing. So then, you know, so the first two pieces kind of like, you know, dove a little bit into, you know, my, my father and into my mother. And I, I obviously kind of like weaved in, you know, text and dialogue and, and, and scenes and things. And, 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 and then I just started playing more with this idea of site specificity. And one of the well, one of the first site-specific performances I did was in the Miami-Dade Miami Main Library in downtown Miami. And then the next one I did was at the Hylia Racetrack, or as it's known now as the Hylia Park. And that one 
was really special to me because I I used to go there all the time when I was a kid and it was it was literally like down the street from where my old ballet school was where I was born and you know it was one of these things that I I remember like telling my grandmother she she really couldn't go at the time because she was already ill but I remember telling her like abuelita I'm going to do a piece in the hipódromo de Hialeah and she was like ay qué lindo you know <laughs> because she loved to go there so it, you know and yeah so that was that was that and then i think one of the next works that i did well i'll i'll just say one of the 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 current works that i'm exploring right now have to do a lot with me being a mother and you know my relationship to you know sort of my responsibility of legacy and of lineage to my children but also to the environment to the city of Miami like you know what is it going to look like in the future what what role am i playing as a an engaged citizen as a parent and 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 all that and 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 then also exploring this concept of like our land ancestors right so so you know next week i actually have this concert series where they're taking two works of mine and bringing them together to present them to over 400 students in Miami-Dade County Public Schools and it's a partnership with Live Arts Miami and Dream in Green which is a nonprofit organization that you know focuses on climate resiliency education here in Miami and you know we are so lucky that we're going to have a member of the Seminole tribe coming in to do a land acknowledgement and a short performance. And then it's going to go into this film called Circa. And that film is an animated short that is a community engaged work, right? I created it during the pandemic. I interviewed 37 children like throughout Miami-Dade County to talk to them about what climate change meant to them like, what does that word mean? How do they feel about it? Because I, you know, talk to kids as young as seven all the way to 18. And, and then, you know, I wanted them to put into words and into art how they envisioned the future of Miami in the year 2050. And, and all of those conversations and all of those artworks became this animated short. That, that was part of a, a larger scale work that I presented in, in the Perez Art Museum with with mothers. So there was a performance element to it as well. And it's funny because that was presented during the pen, like right when things started opening up. So it, so a lot of people were like, oh, my God, the first performance I saw right when, you know, things were starting to open up was yours. <laughs> I was like, great, <laughs> great. Thank you. So, you know, unfortunately we're not doing Mia, which is the, the, the performance of the mothers that, that had their children participating or some of the mothers, it wasn't all of the mothers that participated in the work, but that was a whole thing in itself, you know, but the, the next work that is going to be presented in this concert series is a collaboration between myself and a Mikasuki member. Her name is Betty Osceola. And, and then the dancer is Stephanie Bastos, who's a Brazilian-American performer. She's incredible, inspiring, and I'm so lucky to call her a friend. <laughs> so 
that performance really dives into this 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 notion of land acknowledgement, but through movement and and performance. So we hear Betty Osceola's words, and they're so beautiful. She talks about the land and how, you know, the, the thing that struck me was was she talks about, you know, how we are part of the land, how we are part of nature, that we are, you know, a manifestation, if you will, of of the creator. And that when we step on this land, we're leaving imprints for the next generation. Que lindo. Que lindo. It's so beautiful. And 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 for me, you know, so not going back to me, but 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 the idea of this performance is that you know we're going to see all these elements of our land ancestors, you know, speaking, and then the kids will be seeing what 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 their fellow generation, like their fellow peers, are saying about how we should treat the land, how we should view Miami and and respect it, you know. But, you know, it was it was a really interesting process. The The project is called Terra Firma. It's an actually it's a, it's an ongoing project that I want to keep on developing because we've been this will be our fourth performance. And every single time we've done this performance, we have capsules that people leave messages and those messages are deposited in this capsule, and then this capsule is either buried or offered, you know, to an to the organization, the producing organization, and they keep that as a as sort of an offering, a memory, if you will. Wow, no, that's yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a lot in a good way. I, I, there's a lot going through my mind right now. And it, it well, and it also ties into this idea of us as immigrants, right? You know, we are transient people, like you know. I only have one generation here, right? Like I'm the first generation here. So it's it's it, it was interesting for me that when I went to Cuba or when I've gone to Colombia, that I really feel this sense of home. And not to say that I don't feel a sense of home in Miami, but I didn't know the history. I wanted to find a deeper connection to this space. And I felt that the only way that I could do that would be to, to talk to, you know, our native brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I want to, I want to double back almost. Yeah. To your medium of choice, which is dance. Obviously, mm -hmm. I love dancing. I'm Latino. I feel like every Latino kind of loves dancing to some extent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For those who can't see, she just did a little... A little things on camera. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn around in my, my chair. I'm gonna turn around in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like dance as an art form almost has always kind of slipped by me. Like I, I, I have a lot of friends, not a lot. I have a few people I know who are dancers, and it's always something I want to learn more about. Just I like to learn things. What inspired you to get into dance as your medium of choice? Like what led you there? My mother. <laughs> I think I was a very hyperactive child. <laughs> and my mother said that I used to dance all the time around the house. And 
if it wasn't for my my godfather's daughter, who I was very close to, like that was like my first friend. And I remember my mom saying, oh, you know, Christy, that's her name. Christy is taking classes of ballet. And I just, I wanted to do everything that Christy was doing. I was like, I want to go. <laughs> and she signed me up. But there's a, you know, it's interesting because my my ballet teacher told my mom, please take her out. Mm. Take her out of dance. She needs to be running around playing soccer. And and my mom would say, Sandra, you know, your teacher, okay, you're, you're, you know, you're not paying attention. You're running around. I was a jokester. I was, you know, like there's a there's a meme out there where it's like the girl, the ballerina on the bar, but she's hanging upside down on the bar, you know? That like if it. she's in the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there and, and every time my mom sees this meme, she's like, that was you. That was you, Sandra. Like you were <laughs> hanging upside down on the ballet bar rather than being the one that's like lined up and ready to go. And uh, it wasn't until I was 10 that I really started taking it seriously. And because my mom was like, I'm going to kick you out. <laughs> I'm going to take you out. <laughs> my teacher to this day, she laughs all the time. Because, you know, my first teacher, she laughs all the time. because She's like, Sandra, when I would see you walking up the stairs, because it was in this you know, shopping plaza with two floors and, you know, right in the middle of Hialeah on 25th Street, total working class neighborhood, tiny little studio. I mean, the studio was like nothing. I think you could do like one leap and you would already get across to the other side of the of the studio. And she said she would see me walking up the stairs, like super happy. And she would dread it. She was like, oh my God, here comes Sandra. Hi. <laughs> She said she she couldn't take it. She was like, I can't, I can't with this chick. So yeah. <laughs> but I I don't know. It just something clicked. Something clicked for me when I was 10. And I started really, I remember that day like so clearly. Like I remember like so like it was almost like a meditation. I put on my tights, I put on my leotard, I did my hair, you know, I was like ready to go. My mom looked at me and I was like, Let's go. And I remember going and I said, I'm going to be quiet this whole class. I'm not going to make a joke. I'm not going to do anything. And and I, I focused and I did well. And then I just said, huh, I think I can, I think I can do this. And and I just really started excelling after that. It was just like, you know, I joke around a lot now. So it's fine. The full circle moment. Yeah. I've yeah. reverted. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's a cool story. What What are some of your influences <laughs> in dance in terms of artists and movements, things like that? Wow. Well, I want to say that my first influence was Alicia Alonso because she was like the Cuban prima ballerina. And, you know, growing up, like at least in this little Hialeah Cuban ballet school, it was like pictures of her all over the place, right? I I really love the work of Ohad Narin now of Betsheva Dance. I think a lot of people that are in the dance world know what Gaga is. And it, we're not talking about Lady Gaga, but Gaga, the movement system. At least for me, it was it, this during the pandemic, it was so nice to be able to just free myself of the technique, right? But 
Growing up, definitely Alicia Alonso, Jose Limon, um, Martha Graham. Everybody knows Martha Graham from the birdcage, but Martha Graham, Jose Limon, those were pretty influential artists because of their technique. And I learned that, that you know, in, in school, it was very codified and everything like that. Then when I think about like, God, some some more local artists that I've worked with. One of them was Jerry Houlihan. She was a teacher of mine. And, you know, I did a couple, I, I did a work of hers and we did a concert celebrating her work, you know, a few years ago. I mean, maybe almost 10 years ago. And she was very, I mean, she's such an incredible teacher and so insightful and just like generous. And that was a, a, a really big factor for me. Another one that really opened the door for me in terms of modern dance was an artist named Michael Foley. He's now at University of South Florida. I mean, when I started doing modern dance, I was like, so not like, I don't know. I didn't understand. I was like, what do you mean? Like, you want me to contract my body? Like, you want me to drop swing? Like, I, these are all dance stuff that people are probably gonna be like, what is that? No, but but yeah, please say more. It was, yeah, I was, it was, it was stiff. I, and, and they're asking me to release things or to, to curve the body and to, you know, expand and extend and, you know, all, all these things that, yes, they exist in the ballet form, mm -hmm. but just in a different way. And when I started taking classes with Michael Foley, he had this beautiful just release technique and everything was like, there was almost like some hip hop elements to it. And I was like, wow, my body can do this stuff. Like I've never moved my body like this. Right. And that was, that was a, a, a just a, a turning point for me, no pun intended, but a turning point for me <laughs> because it, I, I, I began to enjoy modern dance and I began to look at myself more in the, in the light of a modern dancer, you know, for a lot of people, you know, that don't know the dance world is, is, is really interesting. And especially when it comes to, you know, ballet. And I was always trained as this ballet, ballet person, you know, and I wanted to be a ballerina and I wanted to be a ballerina and I, and I, you know, danced on point and everything like that. But as I grew up, I started noticing that there was things that were going to be limiting me and more so at the time. I mean, I think it's still sort of is somewhat prevalent today. I'm not sure, you know, I've, I've kind of disassociated a little bit myself from that world, but body, body type, you know, whether your legs were long or short or whether your torso was long or short or whether you were, you know, you had a booty or you had a, you know, thick thighs or, you know, if you had, you know, all these things became limitations on whether you would be chosen for a dance company, for a ballet company. And I got it. I, I, I never, you know, I got that feedback from, from some of some people that I really sort of admired that they were like, well, you know, it's just that your thighs are too thick or, you know, you, you have more of a modern dance torso or yeah, you know, this and this and that. It was never about like the fact that, wait, but what about my skill? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can dance, I can turn, I can do all of these things, but you're saying that my thighs are too thick. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in the dance, in modern dance, it was all about inclusivity and, you know, acceptance. And that's where I felt, I was like, all right, well, if my, if my thighs are too thick, which some people, if they hear this, that know me, they're going to laugh. You're going to be like, those people are crazy. Then I might as well, if I'm going to dance, then I might as well, you know, be a modern dancer. And that's the, 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 the road that I took. I, it, it's weird, but I feel like I get it now. <laughs> I feel like I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no. there's a reason why, I mean, there, there was a huge backlash and there's a reason why like people are celebrating Misty Copeland right now. And, and, and I, I love this woman. I think she's incredible. She is strong, you know, she's a strong ballet dancer. And that's what, you know, that's what, that's what it should be. It shouldn't be about these, you know, thin lines and, you know, everything like that. I mean, they're beautiful, but, you know, not everybody looks like that. And, and, you know, at some level, it's really not sustainable. You know, some people don't really get to have longevity in their career if if there's you know just you know i don't know but it, there's a there's, that can go into a whole other topic but no but yeah i'm kind of glad that things are, are opening up a little bit and there's more sort of body acceptance you know what i'm absorbing right now is i feel like already being a latina and already being a latina in miami right i grew up in california and texas i feel like it is very different but to grow up with that pressure and then to go into the dance world where they point things out like that, right? Where it's like your legs are too short, they're too long, your thighs are too thick, whatever, right? So I, I think that's what I'm absorbing right now is just the compounding pressure factors that modern dance kind of is free of. Not free of, but, you know, it's more fluid. I'm wondering, do you, when you create your routines, how is your choreographic process? Do you start with music? Is it mostly focused on improvisation? Or do you focus on movement? How how do you how do you form these movements? Well, like I like I, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit before that you know, theater is also an influence in in my work, and and I look at each project as an investigation, as something that I you know obviously want to explore, something that I want to learn more about, and when I go into each project I think it's it's it, each project is you know they're they're different but I always try to like incorporate some sense of dialogue into the work right so for instance in this in this work of terra firma you know my first thing was I want to I want to speak to somebody from the Mikasuki tribe or from the Seminole tribe right and I just want to know like what is your relationship? What is what is the relationship that you all have with this land? And that's a huge question because I mean, I had to like go into this deep, deep, deep dive of like, you know, the semi the three seminal wars and how, you know, the Seminoles and the Mikasukis are like, you know, they're they're relatives. They're just two independent tribes now, you know. But I wanted to gain a perspective on 
you know, uh, and especially this particular person, I mean, she is so like, well, you know, regarded. I mean, she's an activist. She's, you know, she doesn't consider herself an artist, but I, I do. I think she is an incredible artist or, and, 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 you know, has such deep insight and is really so interested in collaborating with people. And I just found it so humbling on like, like an honor for her to, you know, even be part of the work. And so for this particular work, I wanted to just hear her words and that's what we did. She sent me this recording. It was like about four minutes and she just goes into this thing. I mean, I was like, my mouth was like down to the floor about how they celebrate and they live and how they are connected to the land and how we are the protectors of not just the land, but everything that is on the land, you know, all the, the winged, the, the slithering, you know, she talks about all these beautiful things and about us becoming one with the land at the end of the day. At the end of our time, we become one with the land and then we are part of it. And therefore us being part of the land, you know, yeah, it, it was, it, you know, we are now, now the, then the foundation that the next ge generation walks on. I mean, she says it more eloquently than I do, but, you know, I, that's, I, I, when I saw that or heard that, I just, I was like, okay, how can I take this, this beautiful piece of this beautiful message and create something that will sort of enhance and reflect it in an artistic way. And so you know, usually sometimes I just start with movement, right? But this time I was like, no, we're going to listen to these words and we're going to see what, what comes out of our bodies mm -hmm. from this word. Like what, what, what am I, what, what is the reaction that I'm having? And, you know, we, I worked with a, with these composers, Afro Beta. I had their shirt on actually. So interesting. Look at that. Afro Beta is a duo, Pussy Amador and Tony Smurfio, as everybody knows him. And, you know, they're an indie electronic Latin duo. They mix sounds and rhythms that are very much influenced by their Latin culture. They're both Cuban. And I, for me, for me I think that they have a very sort of in, like, a Miami sound that's very in, that's very authentic, not just Gloria Stefan, right? That's yeah. Give some love to Afro Beta. And they came in and they created this, you know, Tony and I and, and Lucy, we all kind of got together and we started kind of playing with this, with this message. And they just put it into this beautiful score that just gave it so much more breath. So that was one thing. And then I you know, it was, it was so crazy. My my friend was in town. Her name is Stephanie Bostos. And she's from Miami, but Brazilian-American and lives in Oakland. And I remember I was like, girl, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this with me? Like this piece? And this was the first time that we worked together on a work, like, you know, on a, on a dance thing. But she was like, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. Let's dive into it. 
And, and we started kind of playing with movement and figuring out like what, you know, worked with, with what, you know, I didn't want it to be like, oh, here's me dancing and doing some interpretive mime, right? To these words. It, it, it had to fill the, the space. The movement had to fill the space so that it could be, you know, comparable to these, to this powerful music and to these powerful words. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a very fast moving project and, and process. We completed it in about a month and a half. And then we presented it at the Deering Estate, which is a historical house in, in South Miami. Your girlfriend might know this place. And, you know, we did it over a series of four nights. And, you know, in those, the, in the work, Stephanie also sings. And because I also want to, you know, again, bring that vocal element to, to the performance. And at the end of the, of each performance, we collected these notes and inside the paper, it said, what is your favorite Miami memory or what message do you want to share about Miami's future? So they had an either or, and we collected at, in that evening, we collected about, I want to say over 250 notes and I put it in a capsule and we gave it to Betty Osceola as a gift. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm really, my, my performance research lately has been on engaging the community to be part of the practice, to be part of the, the experience and the artwork, mm -hmm. you know, with the kids drawings, with the mothers coming in to dance, you know, for this Mia, which is another, the, another piece that I did. And now this Terra Firma project, which is, I feel like it's starting to gain some, some wings because we've been performing it in different places. I, I, I'm really interested in, in having people be part of this experience in some way. Well, no, that is really beautiful. Thank you. That's an incredible look into your process. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of different things. I say that a lot, but I am. And I'm thinking about ways to kind of bring some of these threads together, right? About lineal space and temporality and movement. And, you know, we're, we're Latin, right? We're Latinos. And I'm curious about specifically your relation to Miami, because mm -hmm. is from my understanding as an outside observer, uh, very different now. I heard there's a lot more techies now. I've heard... The, the mayor bought a stadium for FTX, and I don't think that went very well, especially because your dad's so into technology. I'm really curious. I mean, with all these... You didn't lose that much money on that. <laughs> <laughs> with the, all the things happening with the tech industry, with gentrification, with climate change, I mean, what what do you make of them? I mean, I feel like... And I, I'm going to try to make this short because I can really go on to this. But I feel that Miami has been growing a lot. Like I've been growing with Miami. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. In the 80s, when I was born, <laughs> South Beach was just pure garbage. It was very, very dangerous. I, one of the, the most... God, one of those memories that you keep in the back of your head that you're like, oh yeah, I remember that time was when I, we drove 
down Ocean Drive. I must have been like four or five years old, 1984, 1985. And that area, which is so iconic now, right? Ocean Drive, you know, whatever. It was, it was horrible. Like there was dilapidated, you know, buildings, old people outside and rockers, you know, you did not go there. Like you did not go there, right? Then the 90s come, and I'm a teenager. All of a sudden, South Beach was hot. It was like the place to go. And everybody, like it was like, you know, the, the, it started transforming. South Beach became a thing. And, and I was, you know, I was in high school going to clubs on South Beach. And people were like, what? How? What? And I was like, everybody was doing it. I had to negotiate with my parents because, of course, they were like, what? How are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's okay. <laughs> Ulana's mom is going to take us there. And then she's going to pick us up. But we're like minors, so they're not going to give us any drinks. I'll just drink water. And that was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. Then in like 2000, that's when they started putting the curfews. But by then, I was 20. And I was like, all right, I've already been <laughs> clubbing on South Beach for five years, y'all. Yawn. <laughs> and, and anyways, at that point, I had gone to FSU, but that's when they started putting the curfew of 21 and over. And, that, and then it became, you know, really nice and, and all that. But then in the 2000s, I, Winwood. that's the next one, right? Winwood. I was rehearsing in a warehouse with this Brazilian choreographer. His name was Giovanni Lucchini. And I must have been like 24 at the time, 2004. And Winwood was, was, Winwood was Winwood, right? But not the Winwood that everybody knows today. It was just warehouses. That was it. And you, you knew that at a certain time, you got to close up the shop. And you got to go <laughs> because it was, it was dangerous, very dangerous. And that became a thing. The artists started coming in, more artists started coming in and everything like that. And it's become super gentrified. Now the artists are all leave. Well, they've all left. Mm -hmm. A lot of the artists have left. Even the last remaining performance space just closed its doors, you know? So you have that. And then where does that lead us to? Oh, and now, you you know, Calle Ocho. Calle Ocho was another place that was like, you know, a lot of abuelito, abuelita shops. You know, you might have your Cuban tobacco shop there, guayabera shops. Nothing out of this world. And now that's becoming a thing. So it's, it's, it's wild. It's really wild to see the ships in, in, in peaks of where certain areas have become really, I mean, they just grow, they've just grown. And, and a lot of it is due to this influx of artists and stuff. I think the one thing that, you know, Miami, Miami does tap into that real quick, mm -hmm. right? A place is starting to get a buzz. Boom. All the people start going there and they start supporting everything like that. And da, 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 da. But the, but that the problem is that Miami does a bad job of supporting it, right? What they do is that, oh, there's money here. Let's exploit it. You know, let's take out everybody. Let's raise the rents. 
Let's build, let's give them permits for, you know, high rises here and high rises there. That's what's happening in Wynwood in, in Wynwood now. Mm -hmm. It's insane, you know? So the magic gets lost, you know, it gets lost. So that that's the, the one thing that at least I have witnessed in Miami, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's a problem. And I, and I don't think it's just a Miami thing. I think it happens in a lot of, you know, cities where things become gentrified, you know, and it's not to say that, you know, you know, when the artists came in, they, they really began to, you know, just create these beautiful spaces and, and murals and things like that. And, but there was still a community that was living in Rivoli, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there was still people there. It's just that now, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to find that balance. Yeah. No. So, so I don't know if I rambled on in your question, but. <laughs> oh, I, I guess just to throw something back at you in that context, what is the role of the artist? Wow. Well, I will say that there are a group of artists that are really, really trying to get together. You know, thankfully, I was invited to to be part of this group. There's a couple of initiatives that are happening that I think people are trying to, like, start setting some rules, some contracts and some boundaries. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't even go into Art Basel because Art Basel is another beast in itself. And I think that that's also brought in a lot of this influx of money, of culture and tourism. But again, going back, it's exploited a lot of the local artists, mm -hmm. you know, that are here, that are doing the work. And, and I think that some of the institutions also bear some, some blame because, you know, why aren't we, why aren't they doing more? to support the artists, especially if, if there's so many people that are coming to Miami because of the art, it's because of the art that's happening year round. It's not because Fulano from, you know, from some God knows where comes and has, you know, 20,000 Instagram followers, you know, and this and that, and he rolls himself on the floor. Yeah, that's performance art. That's so amazing. Thank you so much. You've enlightened me. Yeah. So, I think the role, going back to your question, of the artists, predominantly the artists here, is to really, we need to, 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 to set those boundaries and to set those, those contracts and say, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> or we won't do X without Y, you mm -hmm. know? For me, specifically, I think of my role as an artist is that I'm trying to explore these local narratives, if you will, right? I'm trying to explore spaces, history, you know, dialogue that is very Miami-centric. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, yeah, there's 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 a lot that we have to do. You know, I think this last Art Basel was was like the first Art Basel after, you know, since the pandemic and everything like that. And and there was a lot of there was a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk. There was a lot of, you know, stuff that was going on and artists that that were just really like, you know, over it. That they're like, why? Why do I need to, 
you know, show my, do something at this event that, and I'm not getting paid for it. Like, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. So I, it's, it's, we got to put our foot down. That makes sense. Thank you for that. Yeah. I feel something funny that's just going through my mind, not to lighten the mood because that's really important, but I do want to kind of pivot. This is this hasn't even got into the point where I know you, like in your story. Like that, that's the funny part. This is such a long conversation. Oh my god. Yeah, and I, I do want to I do want to get to that, but no, I mean this is I think that's just a testament to how impressive your work is and how important your work is. With that being said, I do want to ask because you know at the very beginning you brought up your company Tapas and you're also a mother. How how do you balance all this? I don't know. <laughs> Time management, calendars, notebooks, posted, you name it. But yeah, I, you know, one of the one of the reasons why I decided to kind of explore tapas is because but you also know, up what tapas is more fully. Sorry to interrupt, but oh yeah, sorry. So we didn't even okay. So for everybody, for everybody that's still listening. Bless your heart. Tapas is, is basically an, a brand with an all-natural patented wood container that holds and displays your delicious bites. We are a, a, a beautiful charcuterie sphere that is sustainably sourced or made out of sustainably sourced woods, such as beechwood, bamboo, and we'll soon be launching our rubber wood spheres. This is a concept piece that I've you know, started exploring in 2015, you know, at the time I was 35. So I'm kind of like looking at myself as well as like, I'm an aging performer, you know what I mean? Like what's going to be the next step for me. And at the time it was just kind of like a, a little bit of a passion side project. You know, we, we, we started, you know, with the, with the whole concept. I, I went to my mother's house. I saw a, a table full of plates and it just didn't really look nice. And, and, and I thought, man, you know, what if there was like a beautiful piece, a beautiful functioning work of art that could hold food and it could be like a centerpiece some game for your table. And of course my mom at the time was like, yeah, keep on inventing Sandra. Mm -hmm, that's cute. And I was like, okay, mom. And then the next day I drew it and I showed it to my parents and my, and my husband. And I was like, what do you guys think? And they were like, is it out in the market? I was like, no, I don't see anything that looks like this. And my parents immediately said, you need to talk to so-and-so's son that just graduated from you know, engineering and this and that. And I was like, oh, okay. But that's kind of how the ball started rolling. Again, me with my puns. But it took about five years for us to take this drawing into an actual conceptual piece well yeah made out of wood mm -hmm. and by then during the pandemic I was like what am I doing I was 40 you know I was still creating you know I was in the middle of, a, of, of an artist residency I kind of had stopped teaching for a little bit because I couldn't do the virtual stuff and I just thought why not <laughs> <laughs> let's let's give it a shot. Let's just, you know, try and launch it and see if if anybody would even buy it. 
And we launched it on Amazon with a very short, like small little number. And we sold out that holiday. And then my husband was like, all right, let's get some more. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) And then we got some, we got like 500 more and we, we added, you know, in those 500, we did bamboo. And the following year we sold out again. And then I was like, but okay, I, I guess we, we have like something happening here. And so, you know, now we're two years, two years and some change into the business. Last year was a, it was a, almost like a restructuring year for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just, I'm just kind of riding this beautiful wave of, 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 of art and design and entrepreneurship that, you know, somebody told me once when they first met me and they saw my, the product and I told them, look, I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm a, I'm a dancer. I'm a choreographer. I I create work. I've, and, and he goes, oh, so you're like a serial entrepreneur. And I looked at him and I was like, what? He's like, yeah. Artists are entrepreneurs. You guys are always creating stuff. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you say it like that, yeah, okay. So I just said, you know what? I'm going to take that with me. And, And, you know, as much as I had struggled with like, what am I doing? what space am I in? I have no idea what, you know, ROIs are or things like that. You know, all these business <laughs> terms. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no, I, I, I still am like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, talk to me like a baby, but, but I am learning, <laughs> but it's been a really interesting road because it's it's something again I'm always intrigued to find out and I'm very curious and this has shown me so much about myself how resilient I am how how I don't take no for an answer when I know that there's a solution and and it's just I think it's just been another sort of manifestation of my artistic practice but just in a a consumer sort of way, you know? Wow. That makes a lot of sense. And I learned a lot more about you than I I think I knew before. This has been really great. I guess just to close out, what do you hope people get out of your work? And what do you hope people get out of your story that we've just discussed? Wow. Well, one thing that I always hope that people get out of my work is a sense of like an imprint that it leaves a memory that it leaves it leaves them with that imprint of whatever they felt at the time you know whether it be a spark whether it be like oh oh wow aha you know that aha moment or something like that and i think a lot of it is also done you know the fact that I engage people to be part of the work is something that that they always take with them. So I, I I want them to feel that the work is is that they have some ownership to the work. My story, hmm. well, 
I, I I hope that people I hope that people maybe get an idea that that you know I'm like everyone else. <laughs> There's really nothing you know special or anything like that, but that if it wasn't for a series or set of circumstances or even people in my life that allowed me to explore, be myself, be curious, ask questions and not be afraid to look for answers. Yeah. I think that that's, Thankfully, I was given a lot of agency for that. And I think it was because my parents being immigrants, you know, my dad was, is such a hustler. And so is my mom. I mean, they were, you know, my dad is a workaholic. He's past 65 and he's still working, <laughs> you know, and so is my mom. Like they don't want to stop working, but they always told me study. I don't care what you do, but get yourself a, an education. and. Do what you love and what you're passionate about and do it well. And the third one is this one. This one is a huge one for me is to, I remember my dad telling me to always, you know, honor the power of networking. Because net, your network will take you to so many places. And, and I, I, I feel like I've lived that. I've lived that through, you know, the people that, that I've been, that I've encountered, that I've worked with, you know, if you give me an opportunity, I'm going to give you 200% of my time and my energy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. This was awesome. <laughs> What I thought was really cool about this conversation, right, which we kind of covered earlier in the intro, is the fact that you can have a lot of these conversations through a variety of different mediums, right? I mean, I'm doing it here on a podcast, which is heavily audio-based. You can have this conversation through film and television and writing. But by the very nature of diaspora and the very nature of migration and immigration, it's so, frankly, cool to have these conversations in dialogue with the body in motion, right? It's really interesting the way you can kind of combine all the different elements that go into dance, choreography and music and set design and staging to talk about what it means to be a Latina in modern America to talk about what it means to be an ethnic minority in contemporary U.S. politics and culture. To say what standards are just unfair and put unneeded pressure on a people who already face so much pressure to succeed and to elevate. I thought that was just really cool. I also think it's really interesting the way her story intersects with a lot of historical moments that most everyone who is an immigrant can relate to in their own personal narrative way, right? Even if it's not directly tied to you or me, it is in shared dialogue with all of us. 
to have a family who left Colombia in the 80s means something. And it means something, especially if you're Latino, right? The connotations of that are just so strong. To have left Cuba in the 1960s means something if you are Latino, because again, the connotations are strong, not just for world history, but for our own historical memory and narrative. Another really important part of this conversation was the conversation on Miami, right? And how the city is changing. This is something we've talked about a lot on Minority Report, the way in which American metropoles are shifting economically, racially, ethnically. And it is important because Miami especially is a city that, in my outside opinion, people are attracted to for ways that are possibly superficial, right? Which is the common thread of it. But beneath that superficiality is a strong culture. Not only a strong culture, but a strong culture that is specifically Latin and Black. And to just, to move into that space without that prior knowledge, right? To move into that corner of the U.S. without realizing what you are displacing or what it means to certain groups of people is, I think, a disservice to the community. I thought it was really important to hear Sandra out about the ways in which people may go there for whatever reason, right? If it's art or if it's clout or if it's a mix of the two. But at the end of the day, you need to give the people who have built the city and turned it into what it is their due credit. And in doing so, find a way in which respecting does not turn into displacement and appreciating does not turn into appropriating. And I think that is a greater conversation to have not only about Miami, but about most American cities in this day and age. I'm mostly just impressed with how much he has done. And I, I know for a fact, because I know her from before this conversation, that she is incredibly busy with her small business and her work outside of that and her art and her family life. I am beyond impressed that she juggles so much and I am incredibly grateful she came onto this show. And I cannot say that enough. So I hope you all enjoyed. That has been this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. This has been Minority Report with me, your host, Salomon Flamenco. Socials to all of the socials, Instagram and TikTok and whatever else are in the description of this podcast. If you want to join the conversation, email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time.